Amen. You may be seated. So today is part three of Desert Trees, and if you have your Bible, turn with me to Joshua chapter 2, or today's sermon text is on page 11 in your bulletin. along with just one little verse in the book of Hebrews. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute, whose name was Rahab, and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I don't know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, And there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord, your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go your way. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us to swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. And if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you made us to swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. And she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned, they came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua the son of Nun, and they told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands, and also the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. And from Hebrews 11, By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient, because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. This is the word of the Lord. And now, Father, please work in us through this this word. In Jesus' good name we pray. Amen. There are trees that can thrive in a desert. How many of you have actually seen a real desert? A real desert. I don't mean like, you know, a dry, I mean like hardcore desert. 
It's hard to imagine how a tree can not just exist, but thrive in that kind of a situation. And there are Christians, this is kind of the point of this series, there are Christians in, in circumstances that offer absolutely no support for their faith, no props for their faith at all. In fact, in circumstances that may, in some cases, directly be working to undermine their faith, and these Christians, in those situations, they don't just stay the course, they don't just remain faithful Christians, they actually bear much fruit for the Lord. How is that possible? And I have suggested to you so far in this series that life as we know it in the modern world is a desert like that. And I want to say again, I don't know that this is necessarily that the modern world is a desert in the way we might think. I remember when I was an early pastor, as I've said to you, I really thought the big threat to Christian faith in our time and in our world was atheism. You know, you just had these very loud, articulate, intelligent voices saying God doesn't exist. And I worried, especially about young people encountering that kind of thing in maybe college classes or whatever. Like the, the thing I was trying to always be work on, working on was direct attacks on what we believe, direct attacks maybe even on our Christian ethics. But as I've kind of gotten hopefully a little smarter in the ministry, I've begun to realize over the years that the real desert power of our world lies elsewhere. It lies in what we could call conditioning. How many of you know what conditioning is? Any of you who are gym rats know exactly what conditioning is. Conditioning is using repetition to slowly change what feels normal. Your body is being conditioned when slowly, subtly, almost unnoticeably over time, what feels normal is not the same. Stuff that used to just wipe you out doesn't wipe you out anymore. Stuff you had no bounce for, you've got bounce for. And you and I are being conditioned. You don't notice it so much. And what we're being conditioned to feel, and I, I, I say that word intentionally, we feel this. Most of you would, in, actually with your conscious minds, disagree with what I'm about to say, but we are conditioned every day in a thousand ways to feel that real life is finding happiness. I mean, you and I can sit in a pew or in an ivory tower, and we can theorize about human ideals of this and that, but when you go kind of out of the tower back to your daily life, on the ground, the hum of daily life in the modern world is all about this question, for crying out loud, what makes you happy? That's what drives college choices, friend choices, career choices, food choices. I mean, look, it's all about like, what makes you happy. That's the hum we're all living in every day. And it feels like, like that's what's real when you kind of stop with all the theory. Now, do let's be inclusive. That thing, that quest for happiness, it can totally be, it can totally include God. It can include religion. It can include church. You know, if God makes you happy, do the God thing. But notice, as we've said in the first two messages, notice the shift. This absolutely does not mean that God is the ultimate reality around which everything in our lives revolves. Like, he's the real thing, and stuff gets less and less real the further it moves away from him. That is not this view that I'm describing. Rather, God can be in the orbit of things, but he feels real and relevant to the extent that he is a kind of dietary supplement in my real-world quest 
for happiness. And if God can help me with that as a kind of supplement, all the, much, all the better for God. And I want to just you to tuck that away for a minute, because we're going to come back to it a little later. Tuck away this, this point, that for modern Christians, what feels real is too small for what we believe is real. Let me say that again so you kind of get that, and we can tuck it on the shelf for just a minute. The, the struggle for you and me as Christians in the modern world is that what feels real is too small for what we actually believe is real. I believe all kinds of stuff as a Christian, but it doesn't necessarily fit well in what feels real to me every day. That's the struggle of the modern believer. There was a time in this world when people felt the reality of all the stuff they said they believed. They looked into the heavens and saw the glory of a glorious God. But what, we, what feels real for us, this daily life of this hum of pursuing happiness, actually is too small for a whole bunch of stuff that we say we believe as Christians. That's the struggle of the modern believer. So just tuck that on a shelf for a minute. Speaking of faith in a desert, I want to ask you something about Rahab. How on earth did this woman become a believer in the God of Israel? I mean, of all the seven characters we're going to look at in this series, this woman has, as we will see, absolutely no props for her faith. No reason whatsoever to believe in the God of Israel. And yet she came to believe fervently in Israel's God in the unlikeliest of situations because what she found is that her pagan beliefs as a Canaanite were far too small for certain realities that she encountered in the world. For her, the thing that happened was her belief system became too small for certain realities that she encountered in the world. And I want to begin in verses 1 through 7 with what I'm just going to call a puzzling deception. Let's just get introduced to Rahab for a second. A puzzling deception. Because just two two quick biographical details I'd like you to notice about this lady. Uh, First of all, she has spent every day of her life as a pagan. By pagan, I mean this girl grew up and is now a probably middle-aged-ish woman. She has lived her entire life in completely outside of what we call the Judeo-Christian thing. Like this, this Abraham and his family history that starts with Abraham and goes all the way down to us sitting here today, she is just in another whole cultural thing. She's in an entirely different religious system. She is a pagan. And what's interesting is she is part of a particular pagan people whom God notes especially for their depravity. There is a verse in Leviticus 18 where God says that the people who lived in Canaan before Israel so defiled the land with their filthiness, their disgusting moral perversion, their worship practices that would have made us, we probably need therapy after viewing them because they were so cruel, especially to children. And, and, and the, the way that God describes this is he said they they defiled the land so much that the land actually vomited out its inhabitants. It's just a a very grotesque picture. The land can't take it anymore, and it just vomits out the Canaanites. That's the kind of people they were. Like half a millennium earlier, God said to Father Abraham, when he's predicting some things that are going to happen over the next 500 years, he says, the, the iniquity, the sin, the depravity of the Amorites, the people who live in Canaan, it is not yet full. And you have a picture of like for 500 years, this cup of filthy, disgusting sin has just been filling up and filling up and now it's just running over and God is bringing 
judgment. She's part of those people. And the second little biographical detail to notice is that she is fully immersed in the immorality of this people. She makes her living from the immorality of this people, a very spicy life as an Amorite prostitute. And she must have been quite successful in her trade because in a city of roughly two to 3,000 people, now you must realize Jericho is not like Manhattan. Jericho is not even like East Northport where I live. Jericho is probably two to 3,000 people. It's not huge, but it's interesting that in this, uh, what we would consider kind of a, a grand village with a high wall, anytime male visitors come to the city, everybody knows where their first stop is to spend the night. And this is well known all the way up to the king of Jericho. Like, guys come to town to spend the weekend, guess where they are? You check with Rahab. Because the king knows some men have come, and the first place he checks is Rahab's house. So apparently she's kind of the, you know, the, the queen of the prostitution industry in, in Jericho. And it, I, I, I'm stressing this. I hope it, if it makes you uncomfortable, that's probably a mission accomplished, because the biblical writers absolutely want us to notice this about this woman, because even in Hebrews chapter 11, it says, you just read it, it refers to her as Rahab the prostitute. Like, don't forget that she was a prostitute. Very interesting. Those are the two things we notice about her, and yet as, it's so strange, so puzzling, because as the tension begins to rapidly build up in these first three verses, and it really does build up very rapidly, because first of all, does it give you, when you read the Old Testament, does it sound like a good thing that Joshua decided to sp send spies to check out Canaan? Has this ever gone badly before? I mean, it, it kind of went catastrophically badly the last time this happened, because 40 years earlier, it was spies going in and bringing, out a, bringing back an, a, a report of unbelief. Like, this is going to, they basically sold Israel, we're doomed. God is not going to be able to give us this land. That report, and the fact that they believed that report, is why they've just spent 40 years meandering around in a wilderness. So we were already uncomfortable. That first spy mission was a disaster because of unbelief. This spy mission seems like it's about to fail because their cover has been blown. I, I don't, you know, it's kind of hard to figure out, like, what happened that immediately by nightfall, the king knows that Israelites, Hebrews, have arrived. And so it, it's tense in the first three verses, but then in verse four, there's something very, very strange, knowing what we know about this woman, a pagan, a prostitute, having learned somehow that these two men who have come to the, to the city, that they are Hebrews, they're Israelites, I mean, maybe these guys just needed more training in spycraft, you, you know, they're, are they running their mouths, who knows, but however she found this out, we find out immediately that she has actually hidden these spies. And more shocking still, this woman jeopardizes her own life by lying to the king's spy hounds to buy time for these two spies to make their getaway out of the city wall. I mean, this is a death sentence. You will be killed for this in a horribly cruel Canaanite way <laughs> if it's discovered. What is she doing? What's going on in her head? Now, before we ask what's going on in Rahab's head, which we'll come to, I want to notice together what this writer of this book we call Joshua, what he is trying to get in our heads as he tells this story. So we're going to come to what's in Rahab's head, but let's just first of all notice what the writer's trying to do in our heads. Because as you're reading this, there are profound resonances here with earlier history with earlier stories. Alistair Roberts, my friend Alistair, has done some great work on this. Number one, the first resonance I'd like you to notice, I'll, I'll ask a question. When before are two messengers sent to a wicked city that God's about to destroy, 
and they are welcomed into somebody's house, and they are sheltered from the violence of that city's inhabitants. See, I've been told I need to stop assuming audiences in 2023 know the Bible. And I have stopped assuming that. So I actually don't know that all of you will know, but surely some of you know. Where have we heard that story before? Two people, two men sent to a city. Exactly, Sodom and Gomorrah. So you guys, are, you're a cut above. Sodom and Gomorrah. Two angels, in that case, sent to a city. They are sheltered by a man, Lot, who is a nephew of Abraham. And then the, the inhabitants of the city want to come and sexually assault these men. And Lot shelters them. Uh, and that resonance is quite obviously here. And the point of that earlier story of Lot in Sodom was that God was intent on saving that man and his household, saving them from the destruction he was going to bring on that city, even though they had chosen to live far away from Abraham's family. And so immediately there's this resonance, perhaps God has kindly plans for this girl. But if that first resonance indicates that God wants to draw this prostitute within the orbit of his grace to Abraham's family, there's a second resonance that indicates, crazily enough, God wants to make her an agent of that saving grace, a savior, if you will. Because I'd like you to think, she, God, if God wants to bring her out of a city that he's about to destroy, the, we call that an exodus, <laughs> a way out. And I'd like you to think as this writer is writing, and the people reading this have read the five books of Moses, which came before, how many earlier Exodus stories begin with the courage and the cunning of God-fearing women? This is actually, like, you've got to stop and pay attention to this because you can miss it because we always focus on the men. How many major Exodus stories in Moses' writings and in Joshua, begin with the courage and cunning of God-fearing women. It is Rebecca who engineers Jacob's exodus from a father who wants to take away his blessing and give it to Esau, and an older brother Esau wants to kill him when, in fact, the blessing goes to Jacob. It is Rachel and Leah, the wives of Jacob, who help him execute the exodus from their tyrannical father, Laban, who is a, like, proto-pharaoh in his own way. And 40 years before this story we are reading here, I love the way my friend Alistair describes this. Think back to last week's message about Moses' parents. So we're backing up 40 years in the story. Think about the courage and cunning of the women in that big exodus story that we all know about, which is the exodus of the slaves from Egypt. Alistair says, Exodus 1 and 2, the early chapters of Exodus, are all about women, and especially daughters, the Hebrew midwives who save the babies, the Hebrew mothers who save their babies, the daughters of the Israelites who lived, Jochebed, the daughter of Levi, who's the mother of Moses, Miriam, the daughter of Jochebed, the sister of Moses, Pharaoh's daughter and her maidens. Attention is typically on the slain sons and on Moses. And we miss the crucial role that the women play in the story. It is the women who outwit the serpent Pharaoh and mastermind the salvation of the Hebrew boys. It is Jochebed and Miriam who bring about Moses' salvation and the daughter of Pharaoh who rescues him. The women and the seed are in direct conflict with the tyrant, 
Let me say that again. The women and the seed are in direct conflict with the tyrant because the story of the Exodus grows out of the enmity established by God between the woman and her seed and the serpent and his seed in Genesis 3.15. So Moses writes Genesis 3.15 about the battle between, the God-ordained battle between the woman and her seed and the serpent, the dragon over here, and that just starts playing out in the Exodus stories that Moses writes about, and it's playing out here again. Another woman shows up to a daughter, interestingly, because she clearly references her father's house, and she is masterminding minding another Exodus. And the writer's just weaving these threads, like, wake up, people. She's not only going to be saved by the Lord, she's going to be an agent of another exodus. And we are recognizing, as we read, that Rahab is participating in something that is so much bigger than herself. But the mystery I want to probe is how did she come to recognize that? Name a single prop for this woman's faith in this pagan context. So I want to move from the puzzling deception to the profound disruption that she references in verses 8 through 14, particularly in verse 9 when she says, I know, I know, because a profound disruption has occurred. Now, let me pull something off the shelf. In the intro, I said that the, 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 I mentioned the struggle of believers in the modern world. And the struggle for believers in God in the modern world, as I said, is that what feels real is too small for what we believe. Please hear this. That's the struggle of the believer in the modern world. What we feel is real is too small for what we believe. But brothers and sisters, as Christians, we forget the struggle of unbelievers. Unbelievers also have a struggle. They had it in Rahab's world, they have it in our world. And the struggle of the unbeliever is that what they believe is too small for what they know is real. See, for us, what feels real is too small for all the stuff we believe. But for the unbeliever, what they believe is too small for stuff they know is real. God has been breaking open Rahab's cramped little belief box. Because see, in Rahab's pagan belief system, here's the world. There are particular lives in particular cities, in particular tribes with particular deities, because each tribe has its own little deity. That's her world. You know, she's Rahab, she lives in Jericho, as part of a tribe, they have their tribal deities. That's the world. And other people could live elsewhere with their cities and tribes and deities, but this is my world. Nothing ties, nothing in Rahab's belief system ties her life to anything bigger. She has no sense of humanity. She has no sense of even the possibility of a God who could be above all the gods. There are just the cities and the gods and the people who live in those cities with those gods. And then in Rahab's little tiny, in her tiny little world, three things come together to cause a total massive disruption of her system. And the first thing that comes together is that as we read, we understand, she doesn't know this yet, but this is happening, the God of heaven and earth, the living God beyond all lying counterfeits of him, made this girl in his image, and he is drawing her to himself. Rahab doesn't realize it. She is not just a Canaanite. It's not that there's the living God over here doing his thing with his people, and somewhere over there, 
is the Canaanite thing, which is irrelevant because God has got his little thing. No, the Lord of heaven and earth made this woman as surely as he made Moses and Jochebed and Miriam. She is not just a Canaanite who lives in Jericho. This woman is a human being made in the image of God, and therefore what that means is she was made by this God she has not yet met to ponder and to desire far more than the particulars of her life. She has a particular context in which she lives, that we all do, but she was made by God to ponder and to desire far more than the simple particulars of her situation. That's the first thing that comes together. God is drawing her. The second thing that comes together is a bit more concrete. This hunter God, and by the way, I keep trying to emphasize, God is not some sort of cosmic therapist whom you can call when you need to feel better. God hunts people. God drags people out of darkness into his marvelous light. And God the hunter has come knocking on Rahab's belief system through her experience in the world. He has been knocking on her belief system through her experience in the world. God has not left himself without a witness. As the Apostle Paul puts it later in the book of Acts, he has not left himself without a witness to this woman because as she's in her world doing her little prostitution thing in Jericho, there are these stories that have been rumbling around now for a few decades as she describes them in verse 10 and following, stories, and she's been paying attention because she talks to people who come and go through the prostitution system, and she's been kind of paying attention to these stories, and there's these weird stories about this God named Yahweh, because she actually, do you realize she calls him by his covenant name here? She calls him not just Elohim, but Yahweh, and this Yahweh she's been hearing about, he like radically changed the lives of a whole bunch of slaves way south in Egypt, And the story is that it just altered the course of that empire. I mean, God kind of like smashed Egypt, and Egypt was powerful. And and she's apparently listened to some more of the oral archives that get passed around in, in this time. The oral archives go back farther because way before that story of God, you know, smashing things in Egypt and bringing these slaves out, there are these strange tales that this God, Yahweh, made promises centuries before that exodus to give these slaves in Egypt the land of Rahab's birth. God, this Yahweh, told this guy named Abraham like a half a millennium ago that he was going to give these people who eventually became slaves my homeland, the land of the Amorites. She's listening to this stuff, and God is knocking. And now, most recently, there is solid evidence that all of these stories have been rumbling. Actually, the promises in those stories are coming true because not very long ago, Eastward, across the Jordan River, there were two very powerful Amorite kings named Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, and Israel has got all the way north and has defeated, resoundingly defeated, these two kings and devoted them and their cities to destruction. So God is really knocking. You do not have to be an investigative journalist in Rahab's time to figure out this stuff really happened. This God, Yahweh, has spoken (laughs) he has announced to people a story that he is writing. And he has acted mightily according to what he has spoken. This is just history. This is real. This is in the news because it happened. And, and this is the part that would have been paradigm shattering at the time in ancient paganism, quite obviously, the plans and the mighty works 
of this God that she's been hearing about, they are not limited to a particular place. His plans and his mighty works are not limited even to a particular people. This God plans and works upon many nations. He just moves things around in Egypt. He will move, has already moved things around in Bashan and in the kingdom of Sion. He apparently has plans and he will work upon people way outside of his tribe. And in fact, the crazy thing about this God is he seems to even be able to command the forces of nature because one of the things we hear about in that story of them coming out of Egypt is that God just dried up an entire Red Sea and then brought the water back on Pharaoh and his armies and drowned them all. This is the God she's been hearing about. And she has begun to realize as God is knocking on her tiny little belief system that she and her people are part of something that is actually cosmic in scope and has a cosmic orchestrator. There's this really big thing that's going on way outside the tiny box of her Canaanite life with its deities. And that brings us to the third thing that comes together. And that third thing that comes together is that Rahab is paying attention to what she encounters in the world and she is pondering what does this mean? And she is realizing, bright woman that she is, as she just thinks about this and listens to the stories passing through her house, she has come to the realization as she's paid attention, this is not a contest of local gods. This is not a contest of little tribal deities. Israel's God, as she says in verse 11, he is the Lord of heaven and the Lord of the earth. That is the scope of his sovereignty. And brothers and sisters, one of the glories of our biblical faith that we forget is that our God and our faith is not limited to an individual. It is not just, I have a little, I, I have a little Jesus in my heart. And God, the God, the true and living God, and our faith in him is not a tribal thing. Oh, you believe that because you're of that tribe. You, that tribe has that God. It is not an empire thing. There is no big enough human thing you can fit this God in. Our faith in the living and true God is cosmic. The God of heaven and earth, the Bible tells us, is seeking and saving a people from every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation. And he is not doing that by erasing all of their particularity. He is uniting all of their particularity under the goodness of his fatherly reign. All nations under his fatherly reign. And it is, interestingly, it is that cosmic, universal lordship of Yahweh that gives Rahab the courage to dare to claim that she could have a place as one of his. Do you realize how unthinkable this is? Do you think as a Jericho dweller you could claim to be a part of the plan of some other god? But he's not just some other god. He is the lord of heaven and earth, which means she can be his. There is room in the kingdom of Yahweh, she has realized, even for a Canaanite prostitute. But I'd like you to notice that she has recognized not just the scope of Yahweh's lordship, but what sort of lord he is. And I think this is for me the most moving part of this story because notice what it is she asks for from the representatives of this God in verse 12 when she utters these profound words, now then, I know who your God is, now here's my request, now then, here's what I want. I want you, as I have shown, swear to me by the Lord, swear to me by Yahweh, that as I have shown, the Hebrew word, you'll, you'll know this from other sermons, the Hebrew word is chesed. 
chesed, that beautiful Hebrew word that means covenant love, steadfast, faithful covenant love, the love that characterizes God himself. She says, as I have showed you chesed, I want you to swear by Yahweh you will show chesed to me. When God showed his glory to Moses on Sinai, he said, I am Yahweh, I am the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and I am abounding in chesed. That is his glory. The dominant note in the glory of God is that he is abounding in covenant love, and that is what Rahab asked for. Do you think there was any chesed among the gods of the pagans, the gods of the Canaanites? These were bloodthirsty gods. They would sometimes require you to burn your child alive in a fire to appease the gods. These were not gods of chesed. These were gods of wrath and war and cruelty and, and submission to an iron will. She understands that where her countrymen fear wrath from this deity they regard as just the other tribe's deity. She can hear the call of grace in these stories. This is the Lord who covenants, who binds himself in covenant with the utterly unworthy. He binds himself to slaves. He will even bind himself to prostitutes. And she says, show me chesed. And the spies give her that resonant answer of God himself, our life for yours our life for yours. Words that will take flesh thousands of years later as God takes flesh and lays down his life for the lives of those who would otherwise be his enemies. And notice as we wind down, flowing out of a profound disruption in verses 8 through 14, we, we end with a permanent devotion. This woman has been so disrupted. Notice how devoted she is in verses 15 to the end. Her simple faith, she's still a child in faith, but she has real faith, and her simple faith, you'll notice, is working faith. James tells us Rahab, Rahab showed her faith by her works. She sends the spies on their way, and interestingly, on their instruction, this is crazy. She marks her house with a scarlet red sign. The purpose of this scarlet red sign marking her house is that the sword of death, when it falls upon this city, will pass over her. And 40 years after the Exodus, what we see here, and the spies know it, and Rahab knows it too, God is still bringing people into his Exodus. <laughs> He's still gathering people into his Exodus, and she's going to be the next. And I just love the fact that unlike Lot, who had to drag his two daughters out of the city almost by force, and his wife was so in love with Sodom, she looked back. Rahab is a very different character. We discover that this woman has an entire church ready to leave this city. Her father, her mother, her brothers, her sisters, everyone who belongs to them, like multiple households, probably a group about you know, the size of this. She's ready to bring like a giant chunk of Jericho out of the city with her, and they're all under the scarlet sign. It was blood before. This is the sign of blood, the scarlet cord. And they will be passed over. And notice, too, in this permanent devotion to God and to his people, the ripple effects of her faith. It struck me, I hadn't noticed this before, 
one of the ripple effects of Rahab's faith. So she, she, it's like she is all in. Y- Yahweh is God. <laughs> he is the Lord of heaven and earth. He is the Lord of Jericho. He's the Lord of Egypt and the, and the God of the Hebrews. And that faith, I mean, you imagine being one of these spies. You just had this experience. Did we just hear right? That woman was insane. <laughs> and they go back to, J- to Joshua and they give their report. And the last time the spies gave a report, it was like, you know what? Yeah, God, but Canaanites, they're gonna, you know, we were like grasshoppers before them. This report is Joshua, truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands and the inhabitants of the land melt away be- because of us. I mean, they're like, we're good. Put on your swords. Let's go. God is with us. Totally different from the last report 40 years earlier. And speaking of ripple, ripple effects, little does Rahab know that as she gives up her false gods and her prostitution, and moves in with the Israelites and marries an Israelite, she has no way of knowing that by faith she will become the great, 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 great grandmother of a man called Jesus, the Messiah of Israel, the Savior of the world. I hope that Rahab's story, brethren, will not only encourage your faith, because if you think your faith is being worked out in a tough context, you know, Sister Rahab can speak to this. I hope it will also encourage you to hope and pray that others will believe. I have times in the modern world where it seems hard to imagine how people could come to faith in our God. But I want to say to you, God still today comes knocking on the utterly flimsy belief systems of non-believers, and he knocks on those flimsy belief systems through the realities that they encounter in his world. Because for the non-believer who believes there is no God, yet in their sense as those made in his image, that somehow we feel and we know that it is true, even though our belief system cannot support it, we understand and know that human life sure feels like it's a real story. It doesn't feel like it's just cosmic gibberish. You know, the cosmos just spewing out protoplasm reactions. It feels like a story. In their sense that suffering matters. Do you realize in a godless cosmos, the cosmos doesn't give a toss about your suffering. But there's this sense that suffering matters. In the sense of these non-believers that love and hope, and guilt. These aren't just spasms of brain chemicals. There's something there that's real because there's this sense that love and hope and guilt are reaching toward things that are real, reaching toward justice that is real justice, not just made up. Like it's there in the nature of things. It's supposed to be. And goodness is good. It's not just like I'm going to say this is good. No, it is. It matters. And I, my heart is inclined toward it because it's real goodness. And truth is real. I'm not just saying it's real. No, it's true. true is tr- truth is true with a capital T. Otherwise, what are we talking about? The sense that beauty is actually speaking to me. And they sense these things. And God is knocking. Because their flimsy little belief system is too small for what they know is real. And I'll close with the words of C.S. Lewis for your encouragement. Believe in God and you will have to face ours when it seems 
obvious that this material world is the only reality. That's a struggle for the believer. Believe in God, you will have to face hours in which it seems obvious this material world is the only reality. Just find happiness. Disbelieve in God. And you must face hours when this material world seems to shout at you that it is not all. Disbelieve in God and you must face hours when this material world will shout again and again at you it is not all because God is knocking. He did it for Rahab. He's still doing it today. Amen. And so work our Lord for the glory of your name among the nations. In Jesus we pray.